Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on History.org. This is Behind the Scenes, where you meet the people who work here. That's my job. I'm Lloyd Dobbins, and mostly I ask questions. This time I'm asking Neil Hurst, and at Colonial Williamsburg, he's a Prentice tailor. Why would you want to be an 18th century tailor? It's a good question. <laughs> Unfortunately, I find that, well, many years ago, I was very interested in the history of, of men's clothing. It's unfortunate the clothing themselves, men's clothing themselves, are not very often uh, studied. Uh, lots of women's clothing survives. It's very pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and men's clothing oftentimes can be seen as very boring. Um, so I was always interested in particularly constructing men's clothing because nobody really does it. Um, and also seeing the transition between the 18th century man wearing his breeches, waistcoat, and coat and how it changes into the 21st century man from your modern-day trousers, your vest, and your suit jacket, uh, and seeing really the transition on, you know, how do you go from breeches that are so short to, to trousers, and what's the difference, and why these men choosing these different things. I just always sort of found it very, very interesting. I, I have always thought that 21st century clothing, because it's a men's suit, is gray, blue, or brown. That's it. That, you, nothing else. But in the 18th century, you had some really colorful clothing. I mean, it's... Uh, I certainly do. Uh, uh, well, I guess that would be more attractive than the 21st century stuff. <laughs> which is... We do still see trends in the 18th century for, for common business wear, uh, blue, brown, black, gray, just like we have in the 21st century. However, when you start going to formal dress, you know, very, very, very fancy attire, if you're going to, let's say, Lord Dunmore's Ball, you're not going to wear blue, brown, black, or gray for the simple reason that uh, many of those rooms are lit wholly by candles. And if you wear black, you'll be lost in the shadows of the entire room and won't even be able to converse with your friends. <laughs> but we do find that typically in the 18th century, at least prior to the point where um, gaslier lights and, and electrical lighting, early electrical lighting, that most men tend to wear very, very bright colors to very fancy occasions. It's not to say that you couldn't wear your apple blossom colored coat to the House of Burgesses or uh, to do business in, but uh, you certainly can wear still your plain blues and browns. And one interesting thing, though, we find that, especially during the summer months here in Virginia, is it's often described that Virginia turns completely white uh, for the just the amount of climate that we live in, the heat that's actually here in Virginia. Um, so it's one sort of concession we give to fashion in the 1770s, just the amount of uh, the heat and the climate and humidity here in Virginia that most of the men in the summertime, whether it's probably fancy full dress or just plain everyday wear, is everybody wears completely white. For a long time, Virginia's senior senator, until he passed away, was Harry Byrd Sr. And I, have, I think it was on Memorial Day every year that he put on a white suit <laughs> and wore nothing else until Labor Day. Until Labor Day. <laughs> I mean, it's, and you could, you could, you know, if you didn't have a calendar, that was your calendar. <laughs> when, when did Harry put on the white suit? And I mean complete with white shoes and a white mm-hmm. shirt and a white... He was just a vision in white. And I never thought of it. But uh, with the heat and humidity that we do have, that was a perfectly reasonable response before air conditioning. <laughs> and even in the 18th century, we still are dealing, we often hear about global warming and things like that. 
Uh, but Thomas Jefferson writes in his notes on the state of Virginia that he can remember days in Williamsburg, or rather the, the change in temperature in Virginia, and specifically Williamsburg goes from hot to cold to cold to hot very, very dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he remembers some days here that the Fahrenheit's thermometer would be as high as 92 degrees, but fall as low as 47 in less than 13 hours. And since we can't live by a thermometer or a thermostat or uh, things like that nature, and we can't run to it and live at a comfortable 68 degrees and shorts and T-shirts all year round, eat strawberries in January, uh, our, our clothing is really reflective of the seasons that we live in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the big differences between our 18th century wardrobe that a tailor and myself would construct for the man and the 21st century wardrobe that we have today. Uh, I had a friend when I was in college who swore he was an apprentice tailor and enjoyed doing it and was was quite good at, at mm-hmm. fixing things if they needed <laughs> fixing. Uh, he maintained that all the time he was working, he sat cross-legged. Is <laughs> yes. that so? <laughs> it is. The old term for sitting tailor fashion. Oh. Uh, it is an ancient and archaic practice for the tailor's trade to sit cross-legged upon our tables in the windows themselves. Why it started, we, we honestly don't know. But of all the images we've ever seen from the 18th, 17th, 16th, 15th century, all the tailors are all sitting cross-legged, at least while they're working, uh, on their work boards and windows themselves. It's comfortable. It's convenient. Uh, we could sit next to, to one another all on one large table and, and work on the same project all at the same time. Uh, it gives full range of movement when you're dealing with lots of heavy things and while you're stitching themselves, uh, the garments together themselves. Uh, so we can give you lots of excuses why we may do it. Uh, but it just seems to be one of those things that tailors are very, very often known for and joked about as well in mm-hmm. 18th century caricatures and, and things along those lines. Um, but they're almost, you're right, almost all the images of tailors, at least prior to the 1960s and 70s, um, are still sitting cross-legged on tables. I guess it's just me. I am not comfortable doing that, so I, <laughs> you know, I would resent it. But if everybody is, is, is feeling fine. Uh, but even after you become... What do they call master tailors? Journeyman. A journeyman is sort of the step between apprentice and, and the master himself. As a master, essentially, in the 18th century, just owns the business. You self could be, yourself could be a master tailor, but you just own the business. You hire competent journeymen to actually run the business for you. Okay. okay. How long do you apprentice before you can be a journeyman? Typically in the, the tailor's trade, it, it's anywhere between about five to seven years, mm-hmm. and they almost always keep it towards more like the seven years. They're, the tailor's trade in the 18th century is the single largest trade in the entire world. Williamsburg itself had 16 operational tailor shops, separate buildings, in the year of 1774, and about 75 tailors actually worked in Williamsburg. Um, so they're really trying to keep their apprentices so they can get the folks, ones who are really, uh, who are wholehearted for the trade and, and really want to do it and try to weed out the ones who are not so. Um, so it's, it's a very long apprenticeship, but... Uh, it's often said that tailors are as numerous as locusts, but as poor as rats. So there's a lot of us. There's another reason. Why do you want to be a tailor? That's... <laughs> well, as long as you're born naked, sir, you're going to need, need clothing, and it keeps me comfortably employed. Uh, now, let, let me be sure I understand it. You only do men's clothing. Primarily, right. Okay. Um, tailors will, in the 18th century, make up... Uh, what's referred to as women's riding habits. In fact, most of the tailors in Williamsburg do, in fact, uh, when they run their newspaper advertisements upon the newspaper, say specifically that uh, they will make women's riding habits. That's probably one one of the uh, concessions that tailors do make for women. 
There are branches of my trade, however, such as the staymaker, which makes specifically women's stays, uh, but it's a whole other trade. Williamsburg had two staymakers working in there, but they're not tailors. They're not making men's suits, the breeches, waistcoats, and coats. How many tailors did you say, 95? About 75. That 75. We've got, yeah, at least to keep those 16 shops uh, operational. That's about 74, 1775, 1774. That, that sort of indicates that men were more interested in, in how they looked in the, in the presentation of themselves than they are now. It certainly could, uh, but also the fact that yourself could not go to a store in the 18th century and buy ready-made clothing, clothing already made off the rack. Okay. Yeah. Your breeches, your waistcoat, your coat, your frock, your rocular, your all of the garments you're going to need, except for things like your shirts and stockings and shoes and shoe buckles, uh, would all be made bespoke in the 18th century. So it's your uh, preoccupation to go find the fabric, the lining, the inner linings, all the things you need for your clothes, and then seek out the tailor that you want your clothes made by. Because mm -hmm. um, it's not, it's very unlikely that you yourself would go to a store and buy your clothes ready-made. Yeah, I uh, obviously had forgotten that. If you want clothes at all, you're going to the tailor. Maybe. Usually. <laughs> uh, what skills do you learn as, a, as an apprentice tailor? Really, the, the main skills, uh, well, it's, if we look at the 18th century skills that, that the tailor would have to learn is the, the running the business. So the art No, that's the, the master. Business. You're not doing that. But right? you have to learn that as well. I mean, if you can't read or write, you can't operate a business itself. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So reading, writing, cipherings. Um, all those things that you need to become a confident, bi confident businessman, but also the, really the art of the trade is the cutting. Um, oftentimes people confuse sewing with tailoring, but the true art of the tailor is taking the measure from your body, making it into a flat pattern, cutting it out, and then stitching it together. Stitching, I could hire yourself in here and do the stitching for me, but the art of my trade is the cutting and the measuring of your body. However, in the 21st century, of course, we have to reconstruct that trade because we can't go to James Slate, Taylor in Williamsburg, and ask him, how did you measure for those pair of breeches? Or how did you measure for that coat? Um, so we have to figure these things out on our own and take original examples, take patterns off of them, study them, in order to find out our construction techniques that we were using some 200 years ago. Because they are quite a bit different than constructing something with a machine. So you're, you're not only studying an 18th century craft as an apprentice, you are doing it in the 18th century way. Right. So you have to learn two things. Right. We're learning a lot more than whatever 18th century counterparts would have had to learn because you wouldn't have to go figure out. They wouldn't give you a pair of breeches and say, study these, figure out how to put together, and then make this pair. They were just given the cloth and told just to make the pair for customer X. Um, so we have a lot more that's on our shoulders in order to study the trade, in order to perpetuate the trade. Because uh, unfortunately, the tailor's trade is not the most popular trade any longer uh, in the 21st century. It's probably the least common trade you'll find somebody practicing in. So, uh, the, which leads to the question, what attracted you to it other than your interest in <laughs> men's clothes? I mean, it seems to me it would be a, 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 uh, one of the more difficult things it to is. learn. I also like the challenge and studying of the original garments to figure out why they were put together and why they are put together in that manner. Uh, but it is certainly a challenge to to take on that aspect uh, of the trade and learning out and trying to learn how this person actually did this some 200 years ago. Um, but it's sort of the the chase, you know. You're trying to always figure out. And there's not any garment that you just study that survives from the 18th century is the same. And so learning all these different techniques from all these different tailors, whoever they are, because we don't know who they were, um, and trying to put these garments together. So if you came to me and said, "I want a pair of 18th century breeches with a purse pocket that buckle behind." We know what that means, and we can actually make them for actually, you. Actually, I wouldn't know what that <laughs> meant, so I wouldn't ask for it. <laughs> that's, that's, I, uh, I have 
great admiration for people who learn how to do new things with their hands. Mm -hmm. And if you're cutting 18th century style, it's scissors. It's no laser. So it's either you get a pair of scissors and you whack away at the cloth, (laughs) and then you sew it together in some, and it fits, which is... Ideally. Well, (laughs) ideally, yes. If you want to sell it, it fits. It's... uh, But I I have great difficulty understanding why somebody would want to undertake something that difficult. Well, we often think it's very difficult because we never use our hands anymore in the 21st century. We, Like you said, we have lasers to cut these things out. But before the laser, before electric scissors, before the sewing machine, you're talking millions of years of people who who wore clothing that were all assembled by somebody's hand. Uh, The sewing machine itself is not invented until 1846, so in 1776, there's not even the idea of of something mechanical. Most people are thinking about that, but um, the the practicality of coming up with a machine to actually do the stitching for you is not there. So it's just common knowledge that the only way to wear clothing is things that are sewn by hand. Um, But again, it's it's a matter of – we oftentimes grow very tired of hearing, it's amazing that you could do that by your hands. But it was only less than 100 years ago that somebody's hands was doing this for you. Um, even up until the 1930s and 40s, all the buttonholes found in your garments are still done by somebody's hands, as the buttonhole attachment for your sewing machines only invented in the early 20th century. Um, so it's not that long ago that you had handmade buttonholes found in your suits um, or hand-finished seams in your suits as well. But what you think of now is it was... 500 years ago. <laughs> Certainly. Because no one has that skill anymore. Certainly. And it's so, that skill is so easily lost because, as you said, nobody practices that trade anymore. But we're here to perpetuate those trades for posterity so you can see what your ancestors 200 years ago learned and went through in order to understand the cutting, the fitting of clothing. And that's just the clothes, let alone the blacksmith, the wheelwright, the gunsmith, and all these folks who do practice still in these hand trades today. Mm-hmm. How um, long have you been an apprentice? Um, I've been an apprentice here at Clinton Williamsburg for three years uh, this September. Uh, so I've got about four years left. Four years left. So just like my 18th century counterpart, uh, I have seven-year apprenticeship to go through. Well, in four years, I'll look you up and we'll see. If I, <laughs> I'd be I'll happy to make you a suit. Get a pair of those britches with a buckle behind and the something purse. Purse pocket, yes. Purse pocket, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, boy, I'd look nifty in one of those suits. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. Check history.org often. We'll post more for you to download and hear.